Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles with you this morning or nearby, uh, grab them and turn to the Old Testament book again of Exodus. Uh, if you're looking for Exodus, just go to the first book of Genesis and make an immediate left it'll, or immediate right. It'll be right there. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And during this series, this is going to be the text that we start out in uh, every single uh, every single message, and then we'll be also finding some other texts as well uh, as well. So we are in this series right now, and so currently we are zipping through uh, this chapter of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, this is our third week and we have covered three verses. So uh, we're doing really, really good. We're moving right along uh, through there. At this pace, at this pace, we could finish preaching through the entire Bible by the year 2243. All right, who's with me? Who's going to be here for the last message on that one, right? Uh, the year 2243. But good news, we're going to actually cover three verses today. So we're going to cover as many verses today uh, as we have covered through the entire series so far. And we're also going to be looking at Exodus chapter 32. Uh, that's going to be kind of a, a story that we're going to be looking at too. So if you're in Exodus 20, just go ahead and find Exodus 32. Stick your finger in there. Or if you've got one of the, the fancy Bibles with the ribbons, just throw that in there. And we're going to be getting to that um, in just a second as well, okay? Last Sunday, we covered the first commandment, which was, help me out. Okay, it was just a week ago, people. Just a week ago. All right, it was have no other gods before me, right? That means have no other gods beside me, before me, close by to me. I am a jealous God. And he says, I'm so jealous that I will visit the sins of the fathers upon future generations as well. God means business when it comes to worshiping him. God means business when it comes to his followers being committed and have fidelity when it comes to God. He wants us worshiping none other, no other. In, to put it in the context of relationships, he doesn't want us stepping out and he doesn't want us cheating. He doesn't want us having a wandering eye. He is God and there are no other gods. It is just him. So that is the first one that we looked at. This morning we're going to look at the second commandment together. Exodus chapter 20 beginning in verse number 4. And uh, we're going to read through verse number 6 this morning. Exodus chapter 20 verse number 4. It says this. Do not make an idol for yourself. Whether it is in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath. Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and also keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, as we saw last week, and we want to be obedient to your word as your church, as we saw last week, I pray that we will be, that we will be people who worship you and only you. And as we are looking at today, I pray that we will love and worship you for who you are, not for who we try to make you out to be, not for what we try to form you, not for a box that we try to put you in, Lord. Lord, Father, help us to worship you and let you be God. And let us be us, your humanity, who has been saved, who has been loved, who is so mercifully and wonderfully accepted by you. And so I pray, Father God, that you would help us to see the importance of not trying to remake you into our image, but that we would, in, we would embrace the image you have created us to be, and we would worship you for who you are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So commandment number two this morning, first one was do not have any other gods. The second one is this, do not make an idol or do not make a graven image for yourself. The word graven image means something that I fashion with my hands. I engrave. It talks about something when a sculptor will take something, will take just a piece of earth or a piece of clay or uh, a piece of artwork or wood or whatever and try to sculpt it and make it into what his vision is. And that's really what commandment number two is talking about. Don't take God, this this sovereign, majestic, holy, unchangeable God and try to mold him into an image that you deem fit and deem comfortable for you. 
God is God and we are not. God is God. He sets the rules. He sets the standard for who he is. And we should not try to remake him or an idea of him uh, in, our, uh, in our ideas. Now, we have a lot of sometimes misconceptions when it comes to the second commandment. First of all, just want to be clear and up front here. You heard it right. Second commandment, not the second amendment. Okay, it's a totally different message. So we're talking about the second commandment here this morning. The other misconception I think that we have about it is that we tend not to pay too much attention to it. Now, when I was a kid and when I was kind of growing up and studying and looking at the Ten Commandments, I always looked at Commandment 1 and 2 as kind of like, it was really like Commandment 1 and then Commandment 1A, you know, like don't have any other gods before me. And also, uh, along with that, here's a good way for you to follow that, don't, don't have any idols, don't have any statues, or don't have any images. That's kind of the way I felt, I felt about it. So it was to say, don't have any idols in your possession. And actually, in our modern Western culture, we look at that and we think, I don't have any problem with graven images. How many statues do we really see or do you really have in your home that you actually look at as a religious necessity? Now, we have statues in our culture. Matter of fact, this past summer, there was a lot of talk about statues. What I'm talking about is when you talk about, when we think about statues and we think about false idols and things like that, we think about like statues and shrines and temples like they had in the ancient world or like there are in the far eastern regions and in some of the, the more mystical and eastern type of religions. But in modern day Western cultural Christianity, Christianity, we don't like to think that we worship any idols. See, I had some action figures when I was growing up. I loved He-Man action figures. I liked G.I. Joes. I liked all those things. Uh, I didn't have any Barbies, but, you know, if I was a girl, I probably would have had Barbies. So, you know, there's no, you know, there's, that's not what it's talking about. I didn't bow down and worship He-Man or anything like that. But, you know, there's some things that, that we do have in our, in our lives that we do idolize. They may not take on forms and statues, and you may not have like an altar or a shrine set up somewhere in your basement or in your attic or, or in your closet or something that you go in and you do these pagan rituals and worship, but we do have graven images. And I believe that we have a lot of graven, graven images in our Western culture, and I believe there are a lot of graven images within the church today that we have made in our hearts. I don't think the graven images are necessarily something that's different than God. I think what we're guilty of is doing this. And this is what the second commandment is really getting to. The second commandment is less about us making images that are not God. It's more about making images of God that are not adequate of who God is. Putting God into a box. See, the second commandment is not really about worshiping false gods. It's about worshiping a lesser version of the one true God that we have somehow, some way manipulated and modified in some way that now makes God false to the rest of the world this season. And it's a serious problem. See, because in verse number five, when you look at it and when you see when you break that second commandment, it's going to have devastating consequences for you and for future generations. So what does that mean? Does that mean that if I'm an idol worshiper, if I make a graven image out of God, that my kids and my grandkids are going to have to answer for it? No. What this means is if I set an example of making God someone he's not, my kids pick up on that and they carry it on into future generations as well. They don't, they don't absorb my sin. They don't become guilty of my sin because everyone is guilty of their own sin before God, but they can inherit these, this value system that is corrupt that can then spread from future generations and generations and generations and generations. This is how we had centuries of Israelites that had turned their back on God because they had inherited that practice unknowingly from the generation before them. So here's the big idea. You've ever, you, you all heard this phrase, you know, my, my God is like, or I like to think of God as. Have you ever heard this phrase? Somebody's talking about, well, when I think about God, I like to think of him like this. And we always try to make a metaphor to try to explain God, right? That's fine, but have you ever thought about how, like, how, like, arrogant that is? And how non-true this is and how falsifying that can be? Because what difference does it really make for us how we see God? To God, what difference does it really make to him how we see? Because it's never going to change who God really is. And that's the big idea today. This is the big idea that we're kind of building the whole sermon on this morning is that God is who he is, and we cannot and should not remake him into what we want him to be. God is who he is. He is Yahweh. He is the untouchable God. And we cannot touch him to remake him. Listen, if we could not even approach him and live, come into his physical presence and live, why do we think that we can fashion him like Plato to make him the God that we want him to be? 
This is what the second commandment is really all about. Now let me just kind of give you an idea of how ludicrous it is for us to look at God and say, God, I know that you're the, you're the creator and you're the Lord of all things and you are holy and you are, uh, you are furious in your love and in your jealousy and in your wrath and in your mercy. All of these things. I know that that's who you are, but here's what I need you to be. Let me just bring you down here to where I can really grab hold of you. Okay? So listen to this. So suppose somebody came to you, or suppose somebody came to me and said, you know what, Derek? I've been watching your life a little bit, and here's what I want you to do. I want to write a biography about your life. First of all, I'm going to be like, why? Have you run out of other things? I mean, is there nothing left to write about? Because there's no way that I'm interesting enough to write about. They say, no, I want to write a biography about your life. And I'll be like, well, I'm flattered, and you know, if that's something that you want to do, I mean, go ahead, I'll, I'll help you out, and I'll give you the information that you need. He said, no, I don't need any information of you, because this biography I'm going to write about you, you're not a preacher, you're actually an astronaut. Be like, okay. I mean, I've been on an airplane before, but that's about as much, uh, that's about as, much as I, I could get. And I'm like, you know, actually, to be honest with you, I'm kind of afraid of heights. I, I, don't, I don't know if I like the whole idea of space and, you know, gravity not being there and, and all that stuff. And they're like, you know, and also, you know, I mean, I know you're married and I know you've got kids, but, you know, the, the biography I want to write about you, actually, you have a lot of relationship struggles, so nobody wants to be around you. And so you're basically forced to live with these 18 cats. That's all the only people in the world that like you. And I'll be like, dude, I'm more of a dog person. I don't even like cats. I don't even think God created cats. I think they're a product of the fall. You know? And like, I, I, got a, I got a wife and two kids, and they say they love me, and that I'm a good guy. Like, yeah, but you know what? All that stuff, that's, that's fine. I know that's your life, but this biography, you are more interesting like this. This is the way I want you to be. Now, how do you think I'm going to feel? Or let's say somebody said that about you. They wanted to write a story of your life, but they changed every detail of it. Because what they're basically saying is, the real story of you is just not that interesting. Nobody can really follow along with that. Nobody's going to care to read that. And this is what we do when we make God into a graven image. We say, God, I know your word tells me who you are. I know by experience about following you and submitting to you, I'm going to find out who you are. And the beauty of your holiness is greater than anything that I can fathom or contrive, but I would rather go with my imagination of you. But here's what the word tells us, folks. God's reality of who he is is far better than anything we can contrive with our little pea brain human minds. Anytime you try to remake God, it is never going to be a good enough picture. And any picture you have of God in your mind right now, it's not big enough. It's just not big enough. So it's the same with God. We can't just remake him into who we want him to be. See, the cultural norm today is just to take God or the idea of God and make him into a form. We see a lot of this, especially in our country, because everybody's got a picture of God and who he is, right? There's the Republican God and the Republican Jesus. There's the Democratic God and the Democratic Jesus. There's the Independent God and the Independent Jesus. You know, there's the Catholic God. There's the Evangelical God. There's the Protestant God. There's, there's all of these different views and visions of who God is. All of that, I wonder when we get to heaven, we're going to find out who God really is. And a lot of us are going to find out we're all wrong, except for the Baptists, right? We're all going to be right when we get there, right? We all have these views of who God is and what he does. And, but then we also, in those views of God, we also unknowingly, and sometimes knowingly, we put limitations on him. Or we take him into places he would never go because he's holy. That's what we do when we make God into a graven image. People make God into what they want him to be rather than just believing him for who he really is. And at the heart of this is a desire for control. Because truthfully, when we have to try to make God into what we want him to be, what we're saying is, God, I'm really God. You're just there, not for me to serve you, but for you to serve me. See, for most people, God and Jesus and their faith is just a means to an end. It's just a way to cosmically get the things that we want or to cosmically explain the things that we don't understand in life. But that's not who God is. That's not what following him is all about. God is not there just to make all my dreams come true. Actually, what God does through salvation does more than we could ever dream of or fathom. God does way more than just make our dreams come true because when it comes to God and what we can contrive of him, it's far too little. So most of the time, what we expect or want God to be and who he really is are far two different things. This is when you, when you know that you've made a graven image of God. See, a lot of people say this. I tend to say this a lot of times. I pin this kind of from my experience. So when I'm in my flesh and when I'm making God into my own image, I say this, well, if I obey God, then nothing bad will ever happen to my family. 
They won't get sick. They won't die. My kids won't stray. If God is really God, if I do everything right, then God has to do everything for me the way I want. Or financially, my family and I will never struggle. I've been a faithful tither my entire life. I've held up my end of the bargain. Therefore, God has to take care of everything that I would ever want. See, the problem is that when we do that, and when he doesn't meet the expectation that we have, because maybe he has another plan, we get angry, we get disappointed, we get disillusioned, and we think God can't be real. No, God's still real. He's just not fitting in the box you wanted to force him into. And that's our struggle. See, the problem is that when he doesn't meet that, we have a problem. Now, let's look at an example of this in Exodus chapter 32. So, over in Exodus 20, we see God give the Ten Commandments, right? That's the whole list of the Ten Commandments. We just looked at that this morning. And what was the response to them later on in Exodus 20? They said, we will do whatever you say. Because they'd just seen in this huge fireworks show and thunder and lightning and all this stuff. And they're basically saying, yeah, God, we'll do whatever you say. Fast forward 12 chapters, and they've forgotten all about that. 12 chapters, and they've forgotten all about that. Let's look, uh, before we get into three main points of the message, let's look at this example of breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, so right after giving them the commandments, Moses then goes back up into the mountain, again, to meet with God, to get the rest of the commandments in the law. So from Exodus chapter 21, all the way over to Exodus like chapter 24, and then it extends on further, you start getting all these intricate details and laws and commands. It wasn't just 10, it was a whole lot. And then God puts them on stone tablets, and he wants to send them down from the mountain. So there's a whole lot more. The problem was Moses was gone for a while. And the people are like, you know, where's he at? Where's God's man? Remember they'd say, God, Moses, you're going to be our representative. We're too scared to talk to God because he's so big and so mighty, and we're just scared to do that. We're going to send you to do that from now on. So Moses goes up in the mountain, and he's been gone for a while. He's gone longer than he normally is. And so they're thinking, is he dead? Is God really real? All of these types of things. And so we pick up in verse number one, and we see what happens in verses one through, through six of Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses had delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, and they said to him, and Aaron was, remember, was the guy that went to Egypt with Moses, and he was a spokesperson because Moses stuttered a lot, and Aaron was kind of like, you know, Moses' right-hand man, and he was kind of the head of all the, all the stuff was going to come to him as being the Levite and the worship person and everything. So they come to him, and they say, come and make God for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, first of all, notice this, Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt, ascribing, the, ascribing to the wrong person the right credit, right? We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them, he says, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. I don't know if the guys had to give their gold away, but it looks like they took it off of everybody else. Uh, verse number three, I mean, we'll deal with that problem later. Uh, verse number three, so all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of a calf or a bull. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early in the next morning they arose, they offered burnt offerings, and they presented fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they got up to party. Or they got up to play, as it says in the King James. So here's what happens. The people are scared. Moses, the one who had led them out of Egypt, who had come in and like, you know, he, he had been the one speaking for God and the ten, uh, the 10 plagues had happened and they brought him out of Egypt and they'd seen so many things. Moses had planted his staff into the sea and watched the waters part. Moses was kind of a celebrity at this point, if you can imagine that. Everybody liked Moses. Moses made good things happen. But they credited it to Moses rather than to God who he was speaking for. But at this point, Moses had introduced them to God. said, this is the one who sent me. God has given you these laws. This is how we will relate to God. And they said, we believe God and we will do whatever he says. They said that in chapter 20. By this time, they're getting to where God's not as big a deal. And what is the big deal is the stuff that they could get from him. See, they got scared, and there's not, listen, this is not unreasonable. We sometimes look at the Israelites, and we're like, man, those Israelites, man, they're just, just jerks. Why couldn't they have just worship God? Well, think about their situation. They're scared. And why are they scared? Because they are wandering homelessly through the wilderness. 
There are no warriors. All they are is former slaves. All they know to do is make bricks and build things. They don't know how to defend themselves. They don't have an army. They don't have weapons. They're sitting ducks out there for any tribe or any group who would want to come and basically take over them. And then they'd be back in slavery again. This time to a, to, a, to a people that they don't know, at least they knew what Egypt was like. They don't know what these new people could be like. So they're thinking, we're sitting ducks. Now, here's the thing that we have to notice, too. They don't necessarily ask Aaron to make them a new god. They ask Aaron to make an image of the god they're supposed to worship. I find that very interesting. They're not saying, I'm abandoning God. They're saying, I want a version of God that I can grab onto and put my hope in. There's a big difference in that. They just want an image, a tangible piece of God they can hold on to. The calf or the bull was not to be a new God. It was supposed to be something that symbolized and signified God, specifically an aspect of God. They wanted something that would symbolize his power. In the ancient world and what they had seen in Egypt, the God of power and the God of might in Egypt was in the form of a bull or a calf. So it's what they knew. And they had been told by God that they should worship him. So they begin to mix and mingle these things that they know from their human existence in Egypt, and they try to translate it to their worship of God. So this was a graven image that was representing God, but it was only representing one attribute of God. It was representing his power and his might and his strength. You know what, in the middle of a fearsome situation, in the middle of thinking, <laughs> we have no defense, I think I'm going to be looking at God and I'm going to be praying, God protect me. God, give me some strength. Give me protection. That's the one thing I want right now more than anything. The people wanted to be assured that God's strength would protect them. So in verse number six, Aaron makes this calf, right? And they, it says then they begin to have a feast and they begin to make offerings to it. And then it says they get up to party and they get up to play. Now, this isn't a party in the sense of, hey, let's get some pin the tail on the donkey going. Let's pull out the cornhole tables and let's, you know, just have a party, right? No, this is, when you go back to the original Hebrew word, you find a Hebrew word that has three different meanings. One of those meanings is that they were, um, that they that meant to mock somebody or to make fun of somebody. This is the word play and the word, the word party here. They would make fun of or they would mock something or someone. More likely, though, the meaning here is sexual play. So really what the idea is here, and what many scholars believe, this is the, this is the usage of it, because it goes all the way back to kind of when, uh, when, uh, when Jacob and Rachel were flirting and stuff, and they were caught doing that. It's the same word usage that is there. What's believed is that they start engaging in a lot of promiscuity and a lot of things, and it's just on a mass scale and all that type of stuff that's going on. And you say, why would they do that? Because that's what they saw in Egypt. So this is what they saw. So here's what happened. All of a sudden, they wanted a vision of God, an image of God, and it led them to all of this sin, led them to all of these problems. So it was enough to make God, in verse number seven, call them stiff-necked and say that they have totally corrupted themselves in verse number seven. So God tells Moses, you better get down there and you better deal with it. And here's what happens in verse number 19. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and he threw the tablets out of his hands. That's the scene, if you remember from the movie Ten Commandments, when Charlton Heston throws it down. Throws the tablets out of his hands and smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it up and ground it into powder. And he scattered the powder over the surface of the water and he forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such grave sin? And Aaron said, don't be enraged, my Lord, or don't be angry at me, my Lord. Aaron replied, you yourself know that the people are intent on doing evil. Aaron's like, you know, the people are going to people, man. You know, what am I supposed to do? I've got to give them what they want. And they said to me, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So immediately there's a couple of things revealed. Number one, the people are viewing God in a small box. And they were viewing God through the lens of Moses. Moses was God's representative. So in a way, Moses was God's human manifestation to them on earth. They had put Moses on a pedestal that he did not belong. So they were already guilty of idolatry when they were looking at Moses. And then when Moses wasn't gone, what happens when your idol goes away? Guess what? You've got to find a new idol. Why? Because we're inherent worshipers. And so they said, we don't have Moses anymore. We need another symbol of his strength because that's what Moses had shown. His staff and rod turned into snake. His staff and rod had parted the waters. All of these things that Moses had done, they saw power. 
And they thought that's what God was. God is power, but God is not just power. God is holiness. God is purity. God is justice. God is love. God is so many more things than just power. And so, now watch this. He says, he says Moses, why do you do this? He says, because, because you were gone too long, Moses. That's what he basically says. He says, Moses, you were gone too long. And we thought the whole gig was up. You didn't come back. And then if Aaron couldn't get any dumber, I love verse number 24. Look at this. So I said to them, Aaron says, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire. And catch this. Out came the calf. I just threw it in. It was like an easy bake oven, man. It just came out. No. The Bible said he had gone in and fashioned it. So now he's lying to Moses to try to cover things up. Anybody ever done that before with God? God? I don't know how I got here. I have no idea how I got here. It's just, it's not only us not being honest with God, it's not being honest with ourselves. Let's be honest. So from this crazy story, let's look at three important lessons really fast this morning, okay? And <laughs> translation for really fast from a preacher means pack a lunch, right? Okay, no. Uh, ver uh, point number one. Graven images are the product of an idolatrous heart. Graven images are always the product of an idolatrous heart. Whenever you see an idol, it always traces back to a heart that is set on idolatry. Remember from last week, an idol is anything that we place in the place or above the place or beside the place of God. Idolatry is anything that we put there. It's anything that is as important or more important than God. See, Israel here thought they needed protection more than they needed God. See, it was wonderful that they had God, but they hadn't seen him yet. So they thought Moses was their protection. That's why they followed. We, fought, we find out what their, what their idol is. Their idol is safety and security. Their idol is, has become Moses and what he could do for them, leading them out of Egypt. They liked their freedom, but they wanted their freedom to be comfortable. Israel's idolatrous heart was set on personal safety, rather having personal safety in their uncertain surroundings. How do we know this? Because if you go back and you study the book of Exodus, every single time something went wrong for the people in the wilderness, what did they do? There's a word that's used in the King James. It's an automatopoeia. They murmured. Sounds just like what it would sound like if they did it. Murmur, 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 murmur. They complained every single time something went wrong, every single time they didn't have enough food, or every single time they thought they were being pressured, every single time they thought they were in trouble. What did they do? They said the very same thing. We were better off in slavery back in Egypt than where we are now. Yeah, except for one thing. You were slaves. Right? But this is what they did. This was their default reaction to trouble. Their default reaction to trouble was not, let's trust God. Their default reaction was, let's get back to Egypt where we at least could understand life. I don't know about you, but following Jesus doesn't call me into a life that I understand because what I understand and what I know is a life of death, a life of sin, a life of slavery. But when Jesus calls us to life, he calls us into a life we don't know. And what he says is, the way you navigate this is nothing like the way you navigated life before. The way you navigate this is by holding on to me and I will carry you. And the people of Israel, and let's not just get mad at the people of Israel, we do it too in 2021 as the church of Jesus Christ, as believers who know Christ is our Savior, we do the same thing. When things get rough, we complain and we start thinking about how good it was before Jesus brought us out here on the water. We do the same thing. And so what do we do? We try to form Jesus into this box. We try to form God into this box that would do and guarantee these things. And that's what they did with the calf. So I don't want a new God. I just want a representation of God that's going to guarantee me that I get what I really want. See, they didn't want God for who he was. They wanted God for what he would get them. Isn't that the American God today? Isn't that the way we view Jesus? If Jesus was who he was, things wouldn't be going the way they are. The only time we praise Jesus for who he is is when we're on the mountaintop. When we're in the valley, we're like, we don't even know if he's around. All of a sudden, we're struggling with our faith. And I say we because I'm including myself. This is what we do. The problem is we still have a slave's mentality. But we've been adopted by the king. They weren't after God, just what he could do for them. We make a graven image when we conceive God in a way that guarantees he'll give us what we truly idolize. Did you catch that? I'm going to say this in a little bit more detail. You make an idol out of something whenever you consider it so fundamental in your life that you do not see how you could be happy and secure without it. So what you do is you prioritize it even above obedience to faith in God. You got to have it. 
and in addition to God in order to be happy and secure. These are things I have to have. It's like, God, I love you. I worship you. But here's what I need you to give me as well. And what we do when we say that, we make a graven image when we conceive God in a way that guarantees he'll give me what I want. Psychologist tells us that when we reimagine people this way, it's an issue of control. I want to be my own God. And I want God to serve on this stage of life that gives me and makes the story that he's not writing, that I'm writing. But what the word of God tells us, it tells us something totally different. We're not writing the story. We're part of his story. He's the author, not us. We do the very same thing to God. We need God to be a certain way because we need something that we think he can give us more than just being content with him. Let me give you some examples. We feel like we need money and prosperity in order to be happy. So what we do, we invent a God that will guarantee that to us. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. It's how we get books like Your Best Life Now and people, televangelists on TV saying, sow a seed of faith and send in this money and God's going to take care of all of your problems. Because it oblig do all of these things and it will obligate God to do what you really, really want. I'm not serving him out of gratefulness for who he is. I'm serving him out of greediness for what he'll give me if I do. Another example is we really need to see ourselves as good people. So what do we do? We invent a God who's angry at the sins that other people struggle with more than he's angry at the sins that we struggle with. And so what do we do? We turn into judgmental people looking down our nose at other people saying, look at me, I'm a good Christian. God really hates your sin, but he's only a little ticked at mine. We really need and really want to have sexual freedom or freedom in our relationships, so we invent a God who's okay with it. A God who doesn't really mean for you to be locked into being a male or female when he created you. Or who's okay with you falling in love with someone other than your spouse. He's just reduced to being morally permissive and more, in, more encouraged and more happy with your happiness than with your holiness. We really need political power to feel secure and free. So what we do, we invent a God that's only interested in letting our candidate win. And that's how we get Christians who won't accept an election. Or an example of this is all the people claiming that God couldn't let the previous president lose the election. And then when he did lose, that God would somehow overturn all of it. And then on January 6th, we see people storming the Capitol building with Christian flags and Jesus saves banners and posters. And all the while, what they're doing is reducing Jesus to a political mascot and God to a political operative just to let your party win. We've messed this thing up, people. And I think it's time that the church own it. We've messed it up. Revival is repentance away. We need to repent of holding God down into these boxes that we've consumed him in. An idolatrous heart will cause us to remake God into our own image where he's no longer God. He just becomes a cheap reflection of my own fleshly desires. Folks, God's too holy for that. And we will have to reckon with that one day because it's sin. It's blasphemy. It's idolatry. And as he said in verse number five to Israel, it still applies to us. It is a sin that reverberates for generations. Graven images, number two, are always a distortion of our true God. Graven images are a, a revelation of our idolatrous heart, but they're also a distortion of our true God. Why have a copy or not even a good copy, but a cheap copy when you can have the real thing? Why do that? See, what it is, is when we make God into our own image, it's a reversal of God's role in my life. An idolatrous heart will lead us to remake God in our image. Do we realize that how blasphemous and how, how much of a role reversal that really is? See, how does the Bible start out? If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, how does it start out? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What that means is, in the beginning, you and I weren't there. We weren't there until God created us. We weren't there until God created us. So he is the giver, the life sustainer, the designer of all things. Without him, everything, and I mean everything, crumbles. Without him, everything crumbles. So because he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-wise, he's all, wise, he's all present, he's all of these things. He's sovereign, he's righteous, he's holy, he's merciful, he's jealous. His nature is vast. And in his sovereign authority and his will, he saw fit to create us. And he created us in his image, his image. 
But what we do is we turn around and say, God, thank you for creating me in your image. We use all of the benefits thereof and say, now I'm going to take you and your image and I'm going to create it into mine. What we're really saying to God is arrogantly saying, God, I thank you for everything, but I think you could do a better job. So I'm just going to put you over here in this box. I'm just going to make sure that you're there when I need you, when I want you. Until then, everything else is good. I got everything else under control. You know what happens if the earth tilts off its axis just a little bit? Everything falls apart. You know what happens if we lose gravity for 10 minutes? We all float out into space. Again, not an astronaut. God's holding all of, that in, all of that into control. Yet we think, God, I only need you for the spiritual times. I only need you for salvation and death. That's all I need it for. How arrogant is that? See, the problem with worshiping a graven God is that all you ever get from that is a cheap sugar rush. As parents, you can't just let your kid determine its menu for its entire life. Why? Because if, if you let your children just determine their own menu, it's going to be chicken nuggets, fries, and various forms of sugar. That's all it's going to be. Matter of fact, if I could determine my own menu, that's what it would be. Add pizza. But we know that it's not good for us, right? But this is what we get when we worship a graven God. All we get is the pieces of him that we want. And you know what? We're not prone to pick the pieces that are the best for us. Oh, they're still good. But there's so much more that we need in order to have a whole picture of God. There's so much more that we need. And this is why so many people walk... <laughs> you let your kids just, just, just... like Think about trick-or-treat night. You let your kids just get all the sugar. What happens? You're fine with it because you know a crash is coming. This is what happens to a lot of people today. They, they worship this sugar-stick God and the sugar-stick Jesus... And the crash is coming. And when the crash comes, it's catastrophic to their faith. This is why you have so many people disillusioned by what they see going on in our world today. Thinking, how could God let this happen? Or how could God let that, this happen? And we get people saying, if God's so good, why do bad things happen to good people? All of these things. The crash is catastrophic. We have so many people at an alarming rate today that are going through this process called deconstruction where they're questioning everything about their faith and the questioning of their faith. Listen, questioning your faith is not wrong if it leads you to a deeper understanding of God. But when you question your faith and let it carry you into a place where you reject him even more, it's dangerous. We only remake one dimension of God, never a complete picture of him. Just like the Israelites did. They only wanted a symbol of God's power. They didn't want the symbol of his holiness. They didn't want the symbol of his purity. They didn't want a symbol of his justice. They didn't want a symbol of his love. They just wanted a symbol of his power. And when you do that, you get a distorted view of God. Pictures, I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. Pa pictures, statues, and images will always conceal more than they'll reveal. Pictures, statues, and images will always conceal more than they reveal. If you drew a picture of God right now, what would it look like? I don't suggest doing it because you're directly violating, <laughs> violating the commandment that we're talking about. But if you drew God, what would it look like? If you drew him smiling, you might capture his goodness and his fatherliness, but you'll never capture his wrath against sin. If you drew him frowning, you'll capture his wrath against sin, but you'd miss his grace and his forgiveness. If you draw him towering above the heavens in power, you will obscure the fact that he is close to our souls as an intimate close personal friend and shares our pain. If you show him as a friend by your side, you obscure the fact that he's the God of infinite majesty and his worth, and his worth of unspeakable holiness. What I'm trying to say is when we try to bring God down to our level, we always miss everything he really is. You can only be adequate, and God can only be adequately revealed. You ready for this? You say, well, how does God reveal himself to us? He can only be adequately revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to see God? You want to grab hold of God? Look to Jesus. Grab hold of Jesus because he is the true picture of God. For 33 years, we had a physical manifestation of God walking on planet Earth. Here's what Colossians chapter 1 says about him. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. He is the image. He is that image of God that we needed He's the firstborn over all creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word after making purification of sins. 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what we have to understand. We see the real God in the stories of Jesus. And not just in one or two stories of Jesus. We see him in the collective picture that is painted for us in the Gospels. All of the stories of Jesus give us a picture of who God is. So what about the pictures of Jesus that I have hanging on my wall at home? I'm not saying that you got graven images. For one thing, when you're drawing Jesus, it's different than drawing God because we are trying to, draw, trying to get an idea of who Jesus may have looked like. That's fine. But you've got to be careful still because even the pictures of Jesus are still incomplete. Same thing. If you draw Jesus smiling, it takes back the fact that he sometimes was full of wrath. You draw Jesus, you know, loving, you sometimes take away the things that, you know, he's, he's full of justice. So, matter of fact, just over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they did kind of, uh, they did kind of these comparisons of Jesus, the pictures of Jesus in Sunday school classes through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it was interesting the change that it went through and how much it reflected the, the, t- the signs of the times at that time. Back, for instance, in 1950, Jesus was this meek and mild, pale-faced guy. He was delicate. He had this mysterious glow around his head, and he always looked like he was about to burst into tears. That was 1950s Jesus. 1960s Jesus changed a little bit. He started to look a little bit like a hippie flower child. Longer hair, non-conventional and free-spirited, had this ethereal look in his eye, like you know he was just contemplating the deeper meaning of life and existence. And then he gets to 1970s Jesus, and he morphed into this well-proportioned, like bodybuilder character guy with long, flowing Fabio hair. Had like this, this hair like Ric Flair or somebody like that. You don't know who Fabio is, Ric Flair. Everybody knows Ric Flair, right? Jesus always seems to, our images always seem to follow the signs of the times. So what I'm saying is, yeah, have your, have your picture of Jesus, but understand that it doesn't meet up to God's standard of that. See, we're always going to be limited in images of only showing one dimension of God. Christianity is unique among all the other world religions in the fact that all the other world religions say, go ahead and make a likeness of your God. Go ahead and do that. Christianity is the only religion that is built on spoken word and truth. It says we don't need images to convey the truth because we have the word. And then you go back to John chapter 1. It says in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Guess who the word is there? You should look at it. It's capitalized W. It means it's a name. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the living word. He is the image. He is the picture. He is our God. We need no substitutes. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles didn't run around the world saying, we need to build all these statues of Jesus and build these grand towering cathedrals so everybody can know the might of God. No, what did they do? They ran around the world preaching the gospel. Along the way, we needed other things. The Israelites didn't have statues. They were told not to. Even on the Ark of the Covenant, and this is fantastic, and I don't have time to drill down into the depth of this. But even in the Ark of the Covenant, that was like a physical presence of God as they carried him, him from the tabernacle back and forth. There's two angels sitting at the top and in the middle where the mercy seat is. Guess what? It's vacant. Because it's telling us that there is no adequate image that we can craft of God except for Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, look at, consider number three. A graven image is short-sighted, but then graven images will always promote corrupt behavior. Graven images will always promote corrupt behavior. See, one-dimensional worship will always be deformed. Just like the Israelites, they worshiped this depiction of God for less than a day, and all of a sudden, verse number six said, they were involved in full-scale sexual corruption. One day, less than a day, and they went from worshiping God all the way down to just, in, just participating in all forms of debauchery. What does that teach us? Even worshiping your picture of Jesus that is insufficient of him can lead us into all kinds of wrong behavior can lead us into all kinds of wrong things. See, perhaps it's because they only focused on the power of God. And here's the thing. Power is seductive. And they didn't focus on the beauty of his holiness, which is meant to be sobering and humbling to us. Worshiping a graven, one-dimensional version of God is always going to result in spiritual corruption somewhere in our lives. Always. Healthy spiritual growth comes from seeing and knowing all of God. So let me give you this as we close out. If you're struggling with this, 
If all you see of God is that he is holy and just, but he's never compassionate and gracious, you're going to be judgmental. If all you see of God is being gracious and compassionate and not holy and just, and you're going to treat sin and things that he finds to be an abomination as just a casual indifference in your life. If your God is fully sovereign, always in control of every minute detail of your life, then you're really going to struggle with reality when things don't go the way you expect they should go. If your God is sovereign but not loving and compassionate, then you're going to be an angry Christian who argues all the time about theology but doesn't give a flip about caring, about caring the gospel to anybody. If your God is only a God of justice and not the God of steadfast fatherly love who gave himself for you at the cross, then when things go wrong in your life, you just assume that he's mad at you. So you try to start cutting deals to try to get him happy with you again. And if your God is not beautiful, he's not all satisfying, you find that you serve him half-heartedly. You don't really desire him with all your heart. You continue to struggle with attraction to the things of this world. This is how it practically plays out in our life when we make God into a graven image. So here's the challenge. Find the places of your stress, your anxiety, your worry, your dissatisfaction, and those are the places where you're most tempted to sin, probably. More than likely, they'll come from a wrong view of God. But let that wrong view lead you back to a right view of him. For instance, if you're worried, then really drill down and embrace his power and his sovereignty. If you're insecure, embrace the fact that Jesus and in Christ you have absolute approval and affirmation from God and there's not a thing you could do or a thing you could not do to make him give you more or less affirmation and approval. He loves you tenderly like a perfect father. If you're a judge struggling with judgmentalism, think about his mercy and how much he's shown you and how much other people also should have his mercy too. If you're not a naturally generous person, then think about the over, the over generous way God has dealt with us by giving his son so that we could have eternal life when we didn't deserve it. If we tend to be materialistic, then think about the unmatched beauty and the worth of God that no amount of possessions, no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of significance in this world will ever be able to rival. This is our God. What God is saying is, there's no picture that does me justice. It's the way I feel when I look through my photo library on my phone and I look at selfies of myself. I like, none of these do me justice. Because in my mind, I'm way more beautiful than I really am in actuality. The thing about God is, <laughs> he's way more beautiful than we could ever imagine. So whatever God you're trying to imagine and whatever God you're trying to serve in your imagination, put him aside and say, God... Just be God. I don't need a filter. I don't need to call the shots. Just be God in my life. And that's how we break down this graven image in our lives. This is how we do it as we close out. How do I keep from making God in my image? I have to let him be God. And the truth is, he's going to be God whether you let him be or not. He's going to be whether you let him be or not, but I can promise you, you're going to be so much happier, so much more spiritually fulfilled, so much more confident in your faith when you just let go and let God be who he is. No matter how big your view of God is, it's not big enough. And I realize that we live in the information age and we pride ourselves on understanding and knowing everything about everything, but let me ask you to consider this. If God were actually small enough for me to understand, would he really be big enough and holy enough for me to truly worship? There are a lot of things about God that I don't understand. When I get to heaven, I have a list of questions. I don't think I'm going to be able to take that list with me, but I have a list of questions that I want to ask God because I don't understand them. You know what? I've had to learn in my control-driven life to let go of those and let God just be God. And every time I do, somehow, someway, I grow in my faith. Even though I don't have all the understanding, I somehow grow in my faith when I say, God, I don't understand it, and I don't have to understand it. What I have to do is saddle up to you. See, we want explanation instead of revelation. And we oftentimes want answers when God says, I'm not going to give you my answer, I'm just going to give you my presence. And the second way we break down this idol, these images, is that we just look to Jesus. Let God be who he is and look to Jesus. The one image that he did give us that is accurate, that will lead us to a true holy worship of a holy God. And when I say lead us to a true holy worship of a holy God, I mean you don't enter the presence of God without Jesus. 
And that's why so many people struggle with making God into a graven image is because they've never come to the true image. They've never come to Jesus to understand that there is nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can contrive that will bring me one step closer to holiness. It is only through the sacrifice and the imputed righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The problem with graven images of God is that they always fall short. And when we worship those graven images of God, we always fall short of his presence. In Jesus, we have his presence. In the Holy Spirit, we are constantly in his presence, empowered by him. Why settle for something less? Why? If God is a mystery for you, for you to look at, look closely at his son. He's the express image of his father. I want to leave you with this quote by Dr. Tony Evans. I was listening to him just this week. And as I was preparing for the message, this one, I mean, I'd been preparing for the message and this one just popped out to me and just brought it all home. He says this, there is only one legitimate representation of God. And therefore, there is only one legitimate means of accessing him. I'm talking about the word who became flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the only true representation of God. Jesus told his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the one who has seen me, has seen the Father. Stop looking for examples of God and look to the God-man. Look to Jesus. And while you're doing that, don't say, you know what, I, you'd look better if I tweaked you over here or if I tweaked you over there. No, he is perfectly beautiful in who he is. We don't need to make a better version because we'll never contrive it in our, with our sinful hands. So that's the end of the sermon. And this is the question that we come to as we respond. What is my response to something like this? Am I willing to open my mind, open my heart, open my spirit and say, God, reveal to me where I have made you in my own image because I can guarantee you all of us to some degree have done that. And be willing to say, God, I want to let you be God today. My world, my dreams, my life, I lay in your hands. You don't have to be anything but God and I'll still worship you. Jesus, you're my savior, you're my Lord. If you don't know him as your savior this morning, you're watching or you're in here today, come to him. He is the, the image of the invisible God. Come to him. Father, I pray you'll have your will and way in this invitation, God. I pray that the length of this message did not delineate from the power of the message. I pray you would speak to us now. I pray this morning that you would have unfettered access to our hearts and to our minds and to our wills and we will submit to you in perfect submission break out of our boxes please in Jesus name as we stand this morning you may want to come you may want to pray you may want to pray with someone but here's what we if you draw him towering above the heavens in power you will obscure the fact that he is close to our souls as an intimate close personal friend and shares our pain. If you show him as a friend by your side, you obscure the fact that he's the God of infinite majesty and his worth, and his worth of unspeakable holiness. What I'm trying to say is when we try to bring God down to our level, we always miss everything he really is. You can only be adequate, and God can only be adequately revealed. You ready for this? You say, well, how does God reveal himself to us? He can only be adequately revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to see God? You want to grab hold of God? Look to Jesus. Grab hold of Jesus because he is the true picture of God. For 33 years, we had a physical manifestation of God walking on planet Earth. Here's what Colossians chapter 1 says about him. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all of creation. He is the image. He is that image of God that we needed He's the firstborn over all creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word after making purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what we have to understand. We see the real God in the stories of Jesus. And not just in one or two stories of Jesus. We see him in the collective picture that is painted for us in the Gospels. All of the stories of Jesus give us a picture of who God is. So what about the pictures of Jesus that I have hanging on my wall at home? I'm not saying that you got graven images. For one thing, when you're drawing Jesus, it's different than drawing God because we are trying to, draw, trying to get an idea of who Jesus may have looked like. 
that's fine. But you gotta be careful still. Because even the pictures of Jesus are still incomplete. Same thing, if you draw Jesus smiling, it takes back the fact that he sometimes was full of wrath. You draw Jesus, you know, loving, you sometimes take away the things that, you know, he's, he's full of justice. So, matter of fact, just over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they did kind of, uh, they did kind of these comparisons of Jesus, the pictures of Jesus in Sunday school classes through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it was interesting the change that it went through and how much it reflected the, the, t- the signs of the times at that time. Back, for instance, in 1950, Jesus was this meek and mild, pale-faced guy. He was delicate. He had this mysterious glow around his head, and he always looked like he was about to burst into tears. That was 1950s Jesus. 1960s Jesus changed a little bit. He started to look a little bit like a hippie flower child. Longer hair, non-conventional and free-spirited, had this ethereal look in his eye like, you know, he was just contemplating the deeper meaning of life and existence. I think it's 1970s Jesus, and he morphed into this well-proportioned, like, bodybuilder character guy with long, flowing Fabio hair. Had like this, this hair like Ric Flair or somebody like that. You don't know who Fabio is, Ric Flair. Everybody knows Ric Flair, right? Jesus always seems to, our images always seem to follow the signs of the times. So what I'm saying is, yeah, have your, have your picture of Jesus, but understand that it doesn't meet up to God's standard of that. See, we're always going to be limited in images of only showing one dimension of God. Christianity is unique among all the other world religions in the fact that all the other world religions say, go ahead and make a likeness of your God. Go ahead and do that. Christianity is the only religion that is built on spoken word and truth. It says we don't need images to convey the truth because we have the word. And then you go back to John chapter 1. It says in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Guess who the word is there? You should look at it. It's capitalized W. It means it's a name. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the living word. He is the image. He is the picture. He is our God. We need no substitutes. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles didn't run around the world saying, we need to build all these statues of Jesus and build these grand towering cathedrals so everybody can know the might of God. No, what did they do? They ran around the world preaching the gospel. Along the way, we needed other things. The Israelites didn't have statues. They were told not to. Even on the Ark of the Covenant, and this is fantastic, and I don't have time to drill down into the depth of this. But even in the Ark of the Covenant, that was like a physical like, presence of God as they carried him, him from the tabernacle back and forth. There's two angels sitting at the top and in the middle where the mercy seat is. Guess what? It's vacant. Because it's telling us that there is no adequate image that we can craft of God except for Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, look at, consider number three. A graven image is short-sighted, but then great Im- graven images will always promote corrupt behavior. Graven images will always promote corrupt behavior. See, one-dimensional worship will always be deformed. Just like the Israelites, they worshiped this depiction of God for less than a day, and all of a sudden, verse number six said, they were involved in full-scale sexual corruption. One day, less than a day, and they went from worshiping God all the way down to just, in, just participating in all forms of debauchery. What does that teach us? Even worshiping your picture of Jesus that is insufficient of him can lead us into all kinds of wrong behavior can lead us into all kinds of wrong things. See, perhaps it's because they only focused on the power of God. And here's the thing. Power is seductive. And they didn't focus on the beauty of his holiness, which is meant to be sobering and humbling to us. Worshiping a graven, one-dimensional version of God is always going to result in spiritual corruption somewhere in our lives. Always. Healthy spiritual growth comes from seeing and knowing all of God. So let me give you this as we close out. If you're struggling with this, if all you see of God is that he is holy and just, but he's never compassionate and gracious, you're going to be judgmental. If all you see of God is being gracious and compassionate and not holy and just, then you're going to treat sin and things that he finds to be an abomination as just a casual indifference in your life. If your God is fully sovereign, always in control of every minute detail of your life, then you're really going to struggle with reality when things don't go the way you expect they should go. 
If your God is sovereign but not loving and compassionate, then you're going to be an angry Christian who argues all the time about theology but doesn't give a flip about caring, about caring the gospel to anybody. If your God is only a God of justice and not the God of steadfast fatherly love who gave himself for you at the cross, then when things go wrong in your life, you just assume that he's mad at you. So you try to start cutting deals to try to get him happy with you again. And if your God is not beautiful, he's not all satisfying, you find that you serve him half-heartedly. You don't really desire him with all your heart. You continue to struggle with attraction to the things of this world. This is how it practically plays out in our life when we make God into a graven image. So here's the challenge. Find the places of your stress, your anxiety, your worry, your dissatisfaction, and those are the places where you're most tempted to sin, probably. More than likely, they'll come from a wrong view of God. But let that wrong view lead you back to a right view of him. For instance, if you're worried, then really drill down and embrace his power and his sovereignty. If you're insecure, embrace the fact that Jesus and in Christ you have absolute approval and affirmation from God and there's not a thing you could do or a thing you could not do to make him give you more or less affirmation and approval. He loves you tenderly like a perfect father. If you're a judge struggling with judgmentalism, think about his mercy and how much he's shown you and how much other people also should have his mercy too. If you're not a naturally generous person, then think about the over, the over generous way God has dealt with us by giving his son so that we could have eternal life when we didn't deserve it. If we tend to be materialistic, then think about the unmatched beauty and the worth of God that no amount of possessions, no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of significance in this world will ever be able to rival. This is our God. What God is saying is, there's no picture that does me justice. This is the way I feel when I look through my photo library on my phone and I look at selfies of myself. It's like, none of these do me justice. Because in my mind, I'm way more beautiful than I really am in actuality. The thing about God is, he's way more beautiful than we could ever imagine. So whatever God you're trying to imagine and whatever God you're trying to serve in your imagination, put him aside and say, God... Just be God. I don't need a filter. I don't need to call the shots. Just be God in my life. And that's how we break down this graven image in our lives. This is how we do it as we close out. How do I keep from making God in my image? I have to let him be God. And the truth is, he's going to be God whether you let him be or not. He's going to be whether you let him be or not, but I can promise you, you're going to be so much happier, so much more spiritually fulfilled, so much more confident in your faith when you just let go and let God be who he is. No matter how big your view of God is, it's not big enough. And I realize that we live in the information age and we pride ourselves on understanding and knowing everything about everything, but let me ask you to consider this. If God were actually small enough for me to understand, would he really be big enough and holy enough for me to truly worship? There are a lot of things about God that I don't understand. When I get to heaven, I have a list of questions. I don't think I'm going to be able to take that list with me, but I have a list of questions that I want to ask God because I don't understand them. You know what? I've had to learn in my control-driven life to let go of those and let God just be God. And every time I do, somehow, someway, I grow in my faith. Even though I don't have all the understanding, I somehow grow in my faith when I say, God, I don't understand it, and I don't have to understand it. What I have to do is saddle up to you. See, we want explanation instead of revelation. And we oftentimes want answers when God says, I'm not going to give you my answer, I'm just going to give you my presence. And the second way we break down this idol, these images, is that we just look to Jesus. Let God be who he is and look to Jesus. The one image that he did give us that is accurate, that will lead us to a true holy worship of a holy God. And when I say lead us to a true holy worship of a holy God, I mean you don't enter the presence of God without Jesus. And that's why so many people struggle with making God into a graven image is because they've never come to the true image. They've never come to Jesus to understand that there is nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can contrive that will bring me one step closer to holiness. It is only through the sacrifice and the imputed righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The problem with graven images of God is that they always fall short. And when we worship those graven images of God, we always fall short of his presence. In Jesus, we have his presence. In the Holy Spirit, we are constantly in his presence, empowered by him. Why settle for something less? Why? 
If God is a mystery for you, to, for you to look at and look closely at his son, he's the express image of his father. I want to leave you with this quote by Dr. Tony Evans. I was listening to him just this week. And as I was preparing for the message, this one, I mean, I'd been preparing for the message and this one just popped out to me and just brought it all home. He says this, there is only one legitimate representation of God. And therefore, there is only one legitimate means of accessing him. I'm talking about the word who became flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the only true representation of God. Jesus told him, his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the one who has seen me, has seen the Father. Stop looking for examples of God and look to the God-man. Look to Jesus. And while you're doing that, don't say, you know what, I, you'd look better if I tweaked you over here or if I tweaked you over there. No, he is perfectly beautiful in who he is. We don't need to make a better version because we'll never contrive it in our, with our sinful hands. So that's the end of the sermon. And this is the question that we come to as we respond. What is my response to something like this? Am I willing to open my mind, open my heart, open my spirit and say, God, reveal to me where I have made you in my own image because I can guarantee you all of us to some degree have done that. And be willing to say, God, I want to let you be God today. My world, my dreams, my life, I lay in your hands. You don't have to be anything but God and I'll still worship you. Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Lord. If you don't know him as your Savior this morning, you're watching or you're in here today, come to him. He is the, the image of the invisible God. Come to him. Father, I pray you'll have your will and way in this invitation, God. I pray that the length of this message did not delineate from the power of the message. I pray you would speak to us now. I pray this morning that you would have unfettered access to our hearts and to our minds and to our wills and we will submit to you in perfect submission. Break out of our boxes, please. In Jesus' name, as we stand this morning, you may want to come, you may want to pray, you may want to pray with someone. Here's what we... Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.